Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Why did they hide together? I was reading scripture recently in preparation for a sermon I'd been invited to preach at my home parish. It was a piece of scripture I had read a hundred times. It's the one in which Jesus, after he is risen, shows up in the midst of the disciples. Doors are locked and suddenly there he is. All the disciples are present. Well, all the disciples except for Thomas. So when the rest of the disciples see Thomas, they are thrilled to tell him about what's happened. We were all gathered together, and suddenly Jesus was there. It was really him in the flesh. But Thomas is not having any of it. He's not getting worked up over their crazy story. Matter of fact, he's pretty clear. Nope, not believing it. Unless, yeah, unless he shows himself to me. No, no, unless he shows himself to me, and even better, he must prove himself that he is really Jesus by showing me the nail holes in his hands. No, no, wait, I can go better than that. Unless he shows me the nail holes in his hands and lets me stick my finger in the holes, unless he shows me the spear wound in his side and lets me stick my hand all the way in the spear wound, I'm not buying any of it. This scene is so powerful, and yet suddenly Thomas takes it to a strangely dark and kind of gross place that, let's be honest, would normally be the territory exclusively claimed by middle school boys who for that period of their life have no filter, no sense of verbal boundaries, and no self-awareness when they've gone way beyond those boundaries. Thomas is truly channeling his inner middle school boy. This scene between Thomas and the other disciples could absolutely be a Saturday Night Live skit. When suddenly after Thomas's outburst, the room falls silent and everyone takes a couple of steps away. The other disciples, spooked by their friend's weird behavior, start muttering about this being a really good time to unlock the door. Yep, yep, the door should definitely be unlocked, they'd say. Just, just in case, just in case we need to leave, all of us, in a hurry. Now, Fast forward a week, and they're once again gathered together, but this time Thomas is there with them. And Jesus again appears, and when he does, he turns to Thomas and says, Hey, stick your finger in the hole in my hand. And by the way, take your hand and stick it in the wound in my side. Which, again, I have to imagine half of the disciples turn away for this part and can't watch, and the others that do watch kind of wince as this whole thing takes place. This piece of scripture is normally read in many churches on the Sunday following Easter, and I have preached it many times. I've always been fascinated by this story involving Thomas that is so over the top. How can a preacher not dive in and start talking about it? But for some reason, as I read the story this year, Thomas wasn't even interesting to me. Suddenly, I asked myself a question that I'd never asked before. What on earth are they doing there? They're gathered together 
but why? Okay, I'll come to that question a little later. When I was a kid growing up in the early 1970s, I'd wake up unnaturally early on Saturday morning, still wearing my pajamas. I'd make my way downstairs and turn on the television to watch Saturday morning cartoons with every intention of parking myself there eternally or until my parents forced me to get dressed and insisted I go outside. One of my favorite cartoon series that ran for a number of years and began in 1973 was called The Super Friends. Now, for those of you who are younger and never watched nor heard of this series, if you know the characters or the storylines of the DC comic universe, you will know the series by the name used in comic books and movies, The Justice League. Every Saturday, Wonder Woman, Superman, Aquaman, and the other super friends would come together as the Justice League to take on the forces of evil in the form of the Legion of Doom, which was kind of the alter ego to the Justice League. I loved this show. I loved watching Wonder Woman fly in her invisible jet and use her amazing lasso to force bad guys to tell the truth. I enjoyed watching Aquaman swim through the ocean and call upon the creatures of the depths and talk to them, asking them for help. And I enjoyed watching Superman, who seemingly had unlimited strength when a villain, say, stole the Empire State Building, he would fly it back into place at the end of the episode. Every episode began with some sinister plot, soon to be recognized by the heroes, and almost always, at some point, there would be a place in the storyline at which it looked as if the superheroes might finally have met the problem they couldn't solve. Then in the end, they won and saved the day. Almost always, they won by falling back on their strengths. I never saw an episode where they turned to Wonder Woman and asked her to speak to the fish of the sea or Aquaman and asked him to fly the Empire State Building back into its place, nor did they depend upon Superman to compel someone to tell the truth. When I was in high school, I remember watching a sporting event on television one time. The favored team was not doing well and looked like if they didn't get their act together, they might lose. I remember the play-by-play -play announcer asking the color commentator what the team needed to do to get back into the game. The color commentator, who used to play the sport himself, said, Well, in times of difficulty, you have to dance with the one who brought you to the ball. When your back is against a wall and things are getting tough, remember the strengths that got you this far and go back to those. Now, I'm pretty sure this announcer never watched the Super Friends on Saturday morning, but the advice he gave could have come straight from those episodes. In the Bible story I began this episode with, the disciples are hiding together on the night of Easter. They're afraid they will be arrested like Jesus had been and dragged away to a similar death. And here's the interesting thing. I know there are people who say that the disciples were in no danger whatsoever. Nobody was actually looking for them. And we could debate that if the disciples were ever really in the kind of danger they believed they were in. But regardless, they believed they were in danger. And most of us in their shoes, or in this case, sandals, probably would have thought so too. So let's get to the strange part of this story through a brief recap. The disciples just a week earlier had been through 
Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, they'd been surrounded by adoring fans who'd shouted praises, lined the streets, and covered the path of Jesus with their clothing and palms from trees. And all of this must have been a blast for the disciples, but was not popular with the authorities. Then following Palm Sunday, Jesus had gone straight from the temple to overturn the tables of the merchants who had set up shop there. He had made some sort of whip, we are told, that he used to chase them away. Now between Palm Sunday Parade and the chaos in the temple, he had created quite the disturbance and placed himself and the disciples on the authorities' radar in a new way. Then Thursday night, they're falling asleep in one of their favorite spots in a little garden. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the soldiers come rushing in to arrest Jesus. He's arrested and tortured and executed. And the disciples realize, discover in the midst of all of that, that one of their own has collaborated to betray Jesus and bring about his death. So, taking all of this backstory together and realizing they genuinely believed the authorities were out to find them and execute them all, should they, and in the same situation, would you, A, disperse, disappear, lay low until this is all blown over, or B, find some place you can all gather together in a single place? Seems to me, If ever there were a wise time for some social distancing, and I mean miles between all of them, not just six feet, this would have been the time. So if they genuinely believed they were in jeopardy of being arrested and executed, why did they not disperse? Why gather? Do you remember being a kid and playing hide-and-go-seek? And those times you thought you had found the perfect hiding place where you would never be found, only to have some other kid want to join you in your hiding space. Even as a kid, you knew innately that two people hiding together more than doubled your chance of being found quickly. So now the disciples decide to hide all together. Even a seven-year-old kid knows this is really a bad idea. Given that they are terrified, this decision to hide together seems to be going in exactly the wrong direction. So again, why did they do it? I think the answer can strangely be found in those old episodes of Super Friends. Because when things are going this wrong, they had to go back to the basics, the things that had been at their core from the beginning. When everything else is taken away, as the saying goes, you got to dance with the one who brought you to the ball. Before Jesus was famous, before the blind had been healed and Lazarus had been brought back from the dead, long before the miracles in the crowds, it was just them gathering around Jesus. Now, in this time of crisis, when all else had been stripped away, they did all they knew how to do. The only tool they had left, the one tool that had been there from the very beginning, they gathered together in the name of Jesus. They had nothing else. And yet in that gathering, Jesus was made known. As I tell this story today, I can't help but see the parallels to our world today. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and it seems as if everything has been stripped away by the crisis 
that surrounds us. We, the people of our various local congregations, have so many resources that are not currently at our disposal, resources that we love and sometimes believe they make us who we are, property and architecture or vestments or windows or buildings, the flowers, the organs, and the list goes on. And suddenly we're forced into this social distancing by disease. And all of these things that were so important are now so distant. And let's be honest, none of us really know how to do church anymore because this is brand new territory. We've never done this before. Nowhere in Scripture does it describe what to do. Nowhere is there a section in which Jesus, Peter, or Paul, or any of the under wonderful voices we listen to in the stories of Scripture tell us what to do when we can't be church the way we are accustomed to being church. There's no section on social distancing nor pandemics. So if there are no explicitly clear instructions in Scripture what to do in times like this, what do we do in times like this? What do we do when we are fearful? And it's not far-fetched to see our very existence as communities of faith being threatened. We follow the disciples' lead. When all else fails, go back to the beginning. Go back to the basics. Just gather in the name of God and the rest will take care of itself. So the communities of faith gather online, following the disciples' lead like the disciples 2,000 years ago. Oh, we don't gather in a room with the doors locked for fear of the authorities because times and circumstances have changed the way we are gathering. But when we gather in the name of God, God will be known in the gathering. And that will be enough. No, actually, that's wrong because it's not just enough. This gathering is for us, as it was for the disciples, a powerful reminder, even in difficult times, of the abundance of God's love that surrounds us and permeates our lives, regardless of what's going on in the world. From that fearful little gathering of 11 disciples in a locked room 2,000 years ago, the entire church was born. Today, our communities of faith are gathering online, and who knows what we're giving birth to today as we gather together in God's name. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email and follow me on Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three Ts, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. That's skypilot at gmail.com. My Twitter is at skypilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>